Yesterday morning, I was uh, at my dad's church in Allen. Uh, they had about 11 people being baptized in a beautiful morning of hearing awesome life change stories of how Jesus transforms lives and celebrating that. And just about an hour or two after I got home, just a mile from their church, a gunman opened fire, which at least the last I saw took the lives of eight people and injured seven at Allen Outlet Mall. What a tragedy right here in our community. I've already met many members of our church who know the families of victims. Maybe you do as well. So many people just like you and I who woke up just to enjoy another beautiful Saturday, went to the mall, like we often do. That particular mall, like maybe some of you have been to, and their lives were irreversibly altered to this act of tragedy and evil. I couldn't help but think it could have been any one of us there. Could have been our kids, our loved ones, our family members. So today there's a lot of people who are grieving, who are angry, frustrated, got a lot of questions. Many people in the hospitals, surviving, barely trying to make it. So could we just pause for a moment? Would you bow your heads with me? I want you to just sit in the pain and the grief that many around us are feeling. Just listen to how the Holy Spirit is groaning inside of you at the face of such evil and pain and suffering. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, there is this deep angst in our soul that says this ought not be. This isn't right. Parents shouldn't have to bury their kids. This just isn't right. Father, we come to you now asking for comfort for those families who are grieving the loss of loved ones. God, you're in the ministry of binding up broken hearts. The tragedies of our life draw your presence nearer, close to the brokenhearted, nearer to those who are crushed in their spirit. Father, will you put the balm of healing on the souls and bodies even now in hospitals who are barely making it, would you heal, would you restore, would you give wisdom to the caretakers and hospital staff and physicians and nurses, would you, Father, do what only you can do, bring comfort and healing. Father, we don't want any more children dying out of gun violence or any other violence. So Father, give courage and strength and unity and commitment to whatever we possibly can do to protect the lives of innocent people. We pray for a turnaround, God, in our country, in our society. We know that ultimately it is Satan who devises plans to kill, steal, and destroy. So Jesus, would you hold back the power of the evil one? Even now, God, if there is someone somewhere who's concocting, thinking of a plan to commit such a tragedy in the future, would you right now stop it? Bring conviction, bring healing to their mind, bring repentance, whatever it takes. Bring somebody around them to show them your love, your goodness, Father. Save lives. We intercede for our families and our communities and our children. So we pray for comfort, for courage, for conviction in our society. And use us this week, God, to encourage somebody, to let someone know how much we're praying for them. We're standing in the gap. In our community, God, would you heal and restore the broken hearts? 
God, we trust you when we can't see you, and there's a lot of moments when we don't see what you're doing. We trust you in moments like this when our heart is aching, and we've got doubts, and we've got questions. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. We said together, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me for a few moments of prayer. So my day yesterday began with beautiful celebrations of water baptism. It was a good day, and then come home to find out this news. I don't know if you've had days like that where you have encountered something amazing and beautiful, and then you're suddenly met with tragedy. And oftentimes, life can be this strange dance between tragedy and beauty. And sometimes we switch back and forth, like switching partners in a dance, and other times we dance with both at the same time. And we live in the tension of there's beautiful things happening in our world and our life, and yet these things are falling apart. And every time we're confronted with pain and suffering and the, e- and the evil in the world, we begin to ask questions, right questions, deep, profound questions rooted in the sense of this should not be this way. <clears throat> so on a philosophical level, you may ask this question, okay, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why is there suffering in the world? This is a popular question that makes people wonder if there is even such a God that's loving and powerful. Because we can't reconcile the presence of a loving and great God with real evil in the world. So I I can spend the next 30 minutes addressing this from a philosophical perspective of diving into this question. We could look at how the element of human choice and our free will, more often than not, is the primary contributor to the suffering and evil we see in the world. It's our choices, our sin, our brokenness that causes so much evil. We can look at the bleak alternative of an atheistic worldview that says, just like Richard Dawkins would say, there's no good, no bad, no evil, no God, no design. So we are to feel pitiless indifference. Pitiless indifference towards evil and pain. But we know that's just not possible. Whether you know the victims of a shooting yesterday or some global evil, there is something inside of us that cries out in lament that says, this is not right. This can't be. No one is indifferent towards these realities. We could look at and parse out the how much of global suffering can be alleviated because the earth and the people in it are replete with resources that can alleviate suffering. What we have is not a lack of resources. What we have is a lack of courage and a willingness to be generous and to share and to meet the real needs in the world. So we can address this philosophical question in many different ways, but today we're not spending our time addressing this from a philosophical perspective because... At some point, the problem of evil and the problem of pain, it doesn't remain at the floor of philosophy. It comes down to a personal level, to the ground level. So if philosophically we ask the question of, if there's a loving and a great God, why is there suffering in the world? Personally, we ask this question, if God loves me, then why am I suffering? If there is such a God, if he loves me, then why are we going through this? Why am I going through this? And that's where I want to spend our time today. At the heart level, at the personal level, dealing with the tragic realities that you face, that we face. 
God in the Bible is sort of like a really good pilot who warns us of turbulence, uh, uh, warns us of turbulence before we get there. Aren't you glad when your pilot says, hey, we're about to go into some turbulence, hang in there. It drives me crazy when they don't tell us. Because that's when you begin to jump to all kinds of conclusion. But God's word actually opens up, and the Bible is the only book that actually deals head-on. It doesn't deny it or avoid it, but deals head-on with the pain and evil and suffering in the world. One of the earliest books in the Bible to be written is the book of Job. And the book of Job is primarily devoted to pain and suffering. In fact, here's what Job says in chapter 14, verse 1. Anyone born of women. Okay, by a show of hands, how many of that would be us? Okay. One of the few times we get like 100% participation, right? Anyone born of a woman. What does he say about it? But us, anyone born of a woman is short of days and full of trouble. Thanks for joining us. We hope you have a great day. <laughs> the end of the sermon. But Job, from the very beginning, thousands of years earlier, is saying this is the reality of our life. Short of days and full of trouble, yet we wish it was the opposite or the inverse. We want a life that's full of days and short of trouble. But that's not the reality of this present world on this side of heaven. Solomon wrote 3,000 some years ago in chapter 4 verse 1 about the downside of our human choice and the impact of our decisions and our actions on people. Ecclesiastes 4.1, Solomon says, Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. Chapter 8, verse 14, Solomon says, There is futility that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. Solomon, years ago, is saying what we often say, why do bad things happen to good people? And he's saying what we may be too shy to say, why do good things happen to bad people? The Bible deals with it head on. Jesus even said it like in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. You'll have pain, you'll have trouble, you'll have trials. You'll have loss, grief, you will have suffering. It's a given. You will have pain and agony in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christ's followers are exempt from pain and trouble and suffering. Actually, the story of the New Testament and the story of Christian history over the last 2,000 years is that for Christ followers, our suffering and our pain and our trials may actually escalate and increase. It's a part of the fabric of who we are. We will suffer. We will have pain on many different levels. Today, we're going to be parked in John chapter 11, a familiar passage of Jesus and the story of Lazarus. But I want us to look at this passage of story, this event in the ministry of Jesus, not just as another familiar passage, but as an entry point into a biblical theology of suffering. Because here in the story, Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, is sick. But Jesus doesn't show up until he's dead. Until he dies. It's an entry point to our theology of suffering. So John 11 begins like this. 
Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Martha and Mary and Lazarus was, were close friends of Jesus. They spent a lot of time with Jesus. And here we're told so specifically that Jesus loves Lazarus. And it's a predicament. The one Jesus loves is sick. What that reaffirms is that we can be loved by God. We can have great faith in God. And yet the one God loves, the one God saves, the one that God chooses can still be sick. Can still have pain. Can still have suffering in their life and in their role. The one whom Jesus loves is sick. I imagine when Martha and Mary see the Lazarus is sick, they're kind of imagining, oh, it's, it's okay. We know a guy. Like you met the guy who knows a guy, right? He knows a guy for everything. We got a guy. We know a guy. We got Jesus. He's a buddy. He's a friend. And we have seen Jesus heal strangers that he hadn't even met. He's even healed people by just speaking a word and in distance he's healed them. So surely Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves us. We know each other. Listen, he's not going to die. Jesus will show up. He may even just speak a quick word. The sickness will not lead in his death. They're pretty sure that Jesus will come through. But notice what Jesus does in verse 6. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. He purposefully stayed where he was. And during those two days... Lazarus dies from a sickness that Jesus could have healed. And he dies a death that Jesus could have been, that Jesus could have prevented. In those two days, Lazarus dies. Can you imagine what's happening in the mind of Mary and Martha as they have such confidence in Jesus? Hey, the one you love is sick, so come on. Come heal Lazarus. They've called out to Jesus. They've sent a message to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't come. What do you do when you've prayed, you've fasted, you've shown up, and the answer to the prayer isn't given? He doesn't come through. He doesn't show up. That's where we go through a crisis of faith. I've prayed, I've asked, but he doesn't come. We often live in this time gap of petitioning with God and asking God, and he doesn't show up. He doesn't answer. You have prayed for your child. You have prayed for a child. No answer. Pray for God to heal your marriage. No answer for a breakthrough in your health and your finances. In some issue you're going through and yet no answer. God seems to delay. What do you do when you pray and Jesus doesn't come? Scripture writers give such voice to the agony we face in those moments. Psalm 13 verse 1 to 2 reads like this. How long, Lord? How long? How long will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Psalm 88 is a powerful psalm that actually ends in darkness. No light at the end of this psalm. Psalm 88 verse 9 says, My eyes are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. It's a person who's cried and cried and asked and asked and petitioned and petitioned, and yet no answer. All day long, my pillow is covered with tears, and yet no answer. Think about how the Apostle Paul, who saw Jesus do miracles for so many people, he kept asking, take away this thorn of flesh. Three times I prayed, and all three times, God didn't take it. He didn't heal, but he gave grace. He kept it. We often find ourselves in that time gap of asking Jesus to come and him not showing up. C.S. Lewis married his wife April of 1956. Her name was Joy. But within four years of their marriage, she died with bone cancer. So you can imagine one of the greatest theological minds of our century and of history just grappling with this reality of God. I've served you. I know you. I know the doctrines of faith. I can articulate it. I'm asking you. I'm knocking on the door of heaven for you to respond. And yet no answer. The outcome was not what he imagined. So he sees joy pass away with this horrible condition in her bones. And he begins to write some reflections on the process of his own grief in a book called A Grief Observed. And here's what Lewis says about that process of grief. He says, not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Notice what he's saying. The faith crisis I'm in is not that I'll stop believing in God, but I'll start believing the wrong things about God. And I begin to attribute what I go through and my experiences to what God is really like. That's what happens when we go through agony and unanswered prayers. So this is what God is like. This is the place of when you've prayed and Jesus doesn't come. But eventually Jesus does show up. In verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. He could have walked there in half an hour or so, but he waited so long. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Notice that Mary stayed home. This is the same Mary that in Luke 10, she is the one sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to every word falling out of his mouth. And it was Martha who was distracted by many task. That's Mary. Earlier in John 11, John told us, Mary is the one who anointed Jesus with perfume and washed his feet with her hair. That's Mary. She loves Jesus. She is devoted to him. She's a student of her rabbi, but suffering somehow changed her. At least her attitude 
Something happened between the last event and this event. Grief happened and pain happened and unanswered prayers happened. So when the same Jesus comes to her town, Martha runs out and Mary stays home. She stays with the others who are there to comfort her. She stays home. She's not sure if she wants to see Jesus. She's not sure because she has faced the loss of her brother and the disappointment of Jesus not showing up. She's just not ready. She needs more time. She is grieving. She wants to keep a distance. Maybe that's where some of you are, maybe online or in this room. You love God. You, you serve him. You're saved. But yet there has been a deep trouble of your soul, a grief, an agony. You can't put together and you're wanting to keep a distance. I, I can't handle I can't handle the church. can't handle people. I can't even handle God. That's where you are like Mary, just, just keeping a distance. I want you to know God loves you. He sees you. He's for you. And he still comes into town even if you don't want to see him. And he'll wait, not simply for you, but he'll wait with you. He'll actually sit in the pain with you. He'll sit in the grief with you. Because as distant as you may feel, he's not far. You are inseparably joined with Jesus. And it is actually that very grief that he's interested in. It is that pain that unites you to him. He waits with you in the midst of your pain. And he doesn't say, how could you? He says, I've got you. I've got you. Not mad at you. I've got you. Mary stayed home. And then, verse 21, Martha and Jesus have a conversation. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, notice her disappointment. Just if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then notice her faith. Yet even now I know. Isn't it amazing how our disappointment and our faith can just be wedded together? If you had been here, but yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give. And then Jesus replies in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Jesus told her, Martha said, so Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. But Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha saying, I know ultimately, Jesus, you're right, that he will rise again on the last day. This is actually not a statement of faith, but yet again, another disappointment. Martha saying, I know what you're talking about, that he will rise again on the last day. Yes, that's great. But what she's asking is, what about now? What about in this moment? In fact, she's thinking what we often think. We have ultimate promise, but we need immediate help. We have ultimate promise, but we need immediate help. Martha here is reeling the loss of her brother. And in a community where without a male relative, you don't know what's going to happen to you. There's no sense of security. She knows, yes, Lazarus will rise on the last day, but what about now? What about in my pain, in my agony right now? Yes, we have a gospel of ultimate victory. Where Jesus, we know he will return and he will right every wrong. He will turn every injustice on its head. He will wipe away every tear. He will make all things new. Pain and agony and violence will never be a part of our vocabulary. But oftentimes we feel what Mary feels. I don't need just hope for later. I need something for the now. What do you got, Jesus, that I can hold on to right now? 
Rebecca McLaughlin wrote an amazing book called Confronting Christianity, where she deals with some of the questions that we bring to our faith. And she walks through the topic of suffering and uses this passage beautifully. And she says here in this conversation, it's actually not so much about Jesus and Lazarus. It's really about Jesus and Martha. And how Jesus doesn't fix Martha's problem, but he changes the rule of engagement. He reframes the entire conversation. She knows about the hope for the future, but in the next passage, Jesus gives her something to hold on to right now. So Jesus said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus is speaking to Martha. And he is changing the frame of the conversation. And he's saying to Martha, Martha, your greatest need isn't for your brother to come back. Your greatest need is me. Your greatest need isn't Lazarus' resurrection. Your greatest need is me because I am the resurrection. And I'm not just the resurrection on the last day because today I am life. And I'm life for you. I'm not just hope for the distant future. I'm hope for you right now. What he's doing is he's inviting Mary. Apart from the outcome, whatever that might be, he's inviting Mary not to trust in an outcome, but to trust in a person. To put her faith not in the resurrection of Lazarus, but in Jesus who is the resurrection, who is her life. And in the midst of that time gap of our unanswered prayers, Jesus deals with the core of our faith. And he says, will you put your faith not in the outcome, but in me? Could I be your life? Could I be the resurrection you deeply need? You've heard of the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. A powerful story of a woman who at the age of 17 had a major diving accident that left her paralyzed shoulder down. In that condition, she's been wheelchair-bound for the rest of her life. So much of her dreams and hopes robbed. Today, she is 73, and she's been in that state for 56 years. But here's how she described she found life, not in an outcome, but in Jesus. She says it like this, I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. I'd rather be here, not walking, not running. Right in this wheelchair, but knowing him, finding life in him, than to be on my feet without him. I was reading a recent interview that she had, and she began to talk about how the older she gets, the harder it becomes, the more painful it becomes. She says, I'm exhausted just by when I wake up, just by getting out of bed. I am so tired and exhausted. It doesn't get any easier. So she describes it like this. She said, I've been down that dark and grim path of self-pity, and it is so depressing But instead of choosing those self-centered paths, I wake up in the morning and I say, I can't do quadriplegia one more day, Jesus. I'm so tired of this. But I can do all things through you who strengthens me. She says, I don't know how it happens, but all of a sudden I have this surge of grace from God. He strengthens me in that moment. He gives me favor, power, and the goodness of God surges inside of me and gives me hope. 
gives me a brighter perspective and the power to live the day out as it should be lived. She goes on to describe this chronic pain that she has, especially in the middle of the night at 2 a.m., this incredible pain in her body. She says, when I wake up with this pain, I'm too nice to, to wake up my husband a third time in a row. So she says, I just begin to talk to God. I just begin to pray when my body, every bone in my body is aching. I just begin to talk to God. And I say, I don't think I can do this. But you think I can with your grace. You are asking too much of me. But you don't think you are. So I'm going to believe you rather than my peevish feelings at two in the morning. So when she finally comes to that place of surrender and trust, she says, I don't know where it comes from, but I begin to sing hymns and praise to God. And my heart begins to well up with love, with his goodness, with his joy, and with his power. And on most nights, in the midst of my pain, I fall asleep singing to God. That's someone who has found Jesus to be resurrection and life. In verse 32, as Jesus and Martha are having this conversation, Mary shows up. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked, Lord, they told him, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? A lot of fascinating things happening in this passage. You got the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So if you're looking for a good verse to memorize, there's an easy one for you. But it's yet one of the most profound passages of scripture. Jesus is weeping tears that he could have prevented. He could have prevented this whole thing. And yet he's weeping. And Mary and the Jews are right. If he had been here, perhaps Lazarus wouldn't have died. He could have prevented this. So why didn't he? Why didn't he prevent this? And we think the same about the global suffering of the world. God, why are you not preventing this great evil? We know you hate it, you hate death, you hate destruction, but why don't you prevent it? We ask that as well. Johnny Erickson Tara again, Tara, she, she said there were 10 words when she was paralyzed that her husband said that she has hung on to the rest of her life. So she later writes about it and she says, why evil in the world? Why the cross? God, and here are the 10 words, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Jesus permitted Lazarus to die, just like the father permitted his son to be hung on a cross. He permitted what he hates to accomplish what he loves, which is the salvation of humanity. God permits our free will and the choices and the decisions we make that have deep, regretful impact on people 
And yet it's the only way for us to have genuine relationship with God. It's the only way for love to be genuine. And here Jesus permitted Martha and Mary to go through their grief and not rush their grief. He permitted all of that because he was working out a greater purpose in the midst of that. He permitted what he hated because he was accomplishing, he was achieving something better, something good in and through their pain. He sheds tears he himself could have prevented. While Jesus is weeping, he knows that in just a few minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus back to life. He knows the outcome of this story. He knows what's about to go down, just like he knows the outcome of our story and of our world. And the outcome is good. He will be victorious. He will vindicate all wrong. But that doesn't keep him from weeping with us. He knows where the story is about to turn to. He knows what's about to happen. And yet he still stands and weeps with his friends that he loves. And that's a powerful thing about our Christian faith. It is the only faith in which God both suffers for his people and with his people. He weeps with his people and for his people. Isaiah 53 calls the Messiah the suffering servant. That he is well acquainted with our grief and our pain. And he suffers with us and he suffers for us. Alistair McGrath said it like this. The God in whom Christians believe and trust is a God who himself suffered. And by doing so, he transfigures. He changes the sufferings of his people. He changes how we suffer because in him we see that he suffered. He weeps and he stands in our pain and our grief. And so today, if you're suffering, if you're in pain today, I want you to know it is your pain, even more than your victories that join you with Jesus, that intertwines you with his story and his message. It is our pain that intimately connects us with him. He knows the the pain of rejection and betrayal and injustice. He knows the physical torment of his body, the emotional torment of his soul. If you feel like you can't go on, he felt that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, if there's any other way, will you remove this cup? And yet the cup remained. You can identify with whatever pain and suffering because he is well acquainted with every bit of our grief. I want you to hear me. There is no pain that you have that he cannot feel. And there is no wound that you carry that he cannot heal. No pain that you feel that he can't feel. No wound you carry that he can't heal. So he steps into that moment and he groans, he weeps, he suffers with us in that very moment. We know the rest of the story. They take him to the tomb and Jesus again is deeply moved. And there he prays a very short prayer. And then declares out loud, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who was dead for four days, indeed comes out. It's a powerful miracle that shows that Jesus has absolute power and dominance over the grave and death itself. But our hope in the power of Jesus is not because Lazarus walked out of that grave, but it's because Jesus himself walked out of his own grave. That's where we know ultimately he will be victorious. He will triumph over every pain, sickness, and grief, and suffering. And yet in the story, we wonder, why did you let them go through this entire four days? 
Why did you let your friends, the ones you love, go through this? It's amazing. The Bible begins with incredible joy and this utopic environment and ends with amazing happiness and fulfillment. But right in the middle of this whole story is pain, death, turmoil, and chaos. We could advise God. There's a shorter route you can take, you know. There's an easier path. And those four days for Mary and Martha, maybe 40 years for us, maybe our whole life. And God allowed and he even designed for Martha and Mary to go through this. He didn't give them an FYI conversation. All right, here's how it's going to go down. Four days I'm coming through. This is what I'm going to say. No, no, no. He allowed them to go through every stage of their doubt, grief, and question. Because he was interested in something deeper. We read in verse 27 that Martha, when Jesus asked her, do you believe this? She said, Yes, I believe you are the Messiah that happened before Lazarus was raised from the grave. Her faith was anchored in who Jesus was, not in what he would do. That's where faith comes alive. And that's what God is interested in. He's not a vending machine. He's not someone that we trust for our circumstances to change. He's one we trust regardless of the circumstance. And God, through the moments of our grief, he refines our faith. He develops perseverance. He speaks clear and loud through the pain and the sorrow of our life. He does something that only suffering can do, that only pain can do. He anchors our faith in something so strong, refined as gold. There's another passage in John 11 earlier that he has with his disciples when he finds out the Lazarus is going to die in verse 14. It's such an interesting statement that Jesus makes in John eleven fourteen. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, but I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. What? I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. Why? Because this is the way that you'll believe. How we handle pain and how we handle suffering oftentimes is the way in which others are led to Jesus. And they're comforted in our story and through our story. And we speak volumes about our faith because of the pain we go through. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, she writes about a mom whose teenage son had a severe sporting accident that left him brain damaged for the rest of his life. So she writes about that journey and she says, people often think that the reality of suffering is an embarrassment to the Christian faith. But I think suffering is the greatest apologetic for the Christian faith that there is. Perhaps this is the greatest apologetic that causes people to believe in who Jesus really is. And maybe that's why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are they who struggle, who are humble. When Jesus is describing our groups of people who have endured pain and suffering, they're marginalized, but he is saying it is through this path of pain and suffering that they're going to find life. It is through their pain, they're going to see me and they're going to be filled. They're going to be comforted because I'm going to show them that I truly am life. And in our pain, God removes the sandy foundations of our life and he alone becomes all we need. It's suffering and pain 
that does that. So today, if you're in a season of pain, yes, you could walk away from faith and you could stay distant from Jesus. But what I'm asking you, would you walk towards him? See him in the midst of your pain with you. See him grieving with you. See him right where you are. Walk towards him. Trust him when you can't see him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those, especially in this room or worshiping online with us, who are in that gap between asking you to do something and yet you haven't come. Speak to them. Show up for them in a way that only you can. Let us all, whether we're suffering or not, let us put our faith in who you are and find life in who you are. You are life. You are resurrection. So if we've placed our faith and our joy and our hope in anything else but you, bring us back to God as Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It is simply you who is life. I pray for comfort today. I pray for healing. God, I pray for just the whisper of your spirit in the deepest part of our questions and doubts. Holy Spirit, would you particularly and specifically minister this word to the hearts that are May we believe that you are life indeed. You weep with us. You stand in the gap. No pain that you can't feel. No wound that you can't heal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.